Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast, and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated. Can you hear me clearly? Michael Alago. Yeah, can you the hear legendary me? The well, legendary is with us today. Oh, well, that's so nice of you to say, but I've just been a hard worker all these years. Yeah? Yeah. What are you working on now? Well, here we are during this uh, pandemic. Um, for the first four months, I stayed home. And um, I don't have fear, but I'm very cautious because I have a compromised immune system. And um, so I did a lot of reading because the New York Times gets uh, delivered to my home every day. And during this pandemic, I haven't been able to like focus on books. It like screwed with my mind a bit, that kind of a serious focus to read a book. So I just read a lot of articles right now. And then uh, one day, Uh, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago, I decided to go on an excursion. Where'd you go? I I went to Coney (laughs) Island. Oy vey. Correct, oy vey. That's a good excursion. Well, you know, I love the idea. Mm -hmm. So I get on the train, and the uh, MTA guy said, oh, yeah, you're lucky. It's Express. So I'm reading the New York Times, and um, all of a sudden I hear somebody say, last stop. And I thought, wait. That was too express for Coney Island. Mm -hmm. They said, no, it gets off at Church Avenue, and you have to take the B68 bus upstairs. I dislike buses. And then, of course, during this whole time. So there was a seat empty. It was a one-seater. So I sat there with my New York Times over my face. A woman gets on, face mask, older. man gets on, disheveled, uh, mask on the ear, of course. And she says to him, sir... I just got off an 18-hour shift at the hospital. I'm a nurse. Could you please put your mask on? Come on. He said, could you please mind your own fucking business? Uh-oh. And talk about escalating, that the whole bus now is yelling at him. I pull that lever, and I said, get me off this bus. <laughs> so now I'm walking to... <laughs> where am I walking to? I'm walking to what I think is Coney Island, but it's Brighton Beach. I get to the boardwalk, and I went, oh, my God, it's so nice. There's not a lot of people here until I look on the beach itself. There must have been over a thousand people in a cluster. And I thought, okay, I saw that Nathan's was open. I got French fries and I got back on the train and came home. So that was my excursion after four months. That's funny. Um, So now here we are, it's uh, October. on the 13th, I turned 61. Wow. On the 20th. Mazel tov. On the, thank Mazel tov. you. You look great. Oh, well, thank God, because I don't do crack anymore. You don't look 61. <laughs> thank you. And You're on like the 40. Tw- oh, good. Oh, my God. Yeah. I love you more, Joseph. Yeah. And on the 21st, I'll have. Um, 13 years clean and sober. Congratulations. Yeah, it's a big thing. One day at a time, as they say. And so right now, to answer your question, in a long-winded way, I started this series of portraits called Art in the Time of Coronavirus. Nice. Photography? Photography, yes. I take pictures as well. I know that. So I am... um, I take all my pictures now with the iPhone. I found an application called Hipstamatic. Okay. And everything is in a square. Right. I love anything in a square. Um, it kind of stamps the photographs because everybody is wearing a mask, okay. a face covering. So whether it's uh, Mina Caputo from Life of Agony, whether it's the drag artist Joey Arias, um, everybody has a mask on. Look at Every- my John Lennon has a mask on. That's John with a mask. 
And is it his birthday, October? Yeah, yeah, he's a Libra. He would have been Are, 80, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm a Libra, He would have been too. what? 80, I think. 80, isn't yeah. that something? Yeah. So everyone in my art in the time of coronavirus has a mask yeah. on, a face covering on, uh, because they're paying attention. And uh, so that's what I'm working on right now. And, you know, we keep our distance. Um, I keep my face covering on. They keep theirs on when I take the picture. Uh and that, that's what I'm doing at the moment because I just couldn't sit at home anymore. Like six months at home, you know. I yeah. watch too much MSNBC. Well, for a, oh, that's dangerous. But I Watching do. too much news is dangerous. Right? I mean. But I do flip it over to TCM uh-huh. because I love all those uh, film Turner, noir. Turner classics. Turner classics, yes. Yeah, me too. I love yeah, those. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Bogart, Bacall. Well, last night I saw a movie called Cat People from 1943. Wow. In recent years, Natasha Natasha Kinski um, made Klaus Kinski's daughter daughter, did a revival remember Bowie did Putting Out the Fire with Gasoline so it was a remake but the black and white from 1943 all those movies are like something else yeah they are yeah what about that it's an atmosphere Uh, yeah atmosphere yeah Yeah. great directors Um, sure why are you only shooting with the iPhone? Don't you have fancy cameras too? And don't you? I have two fancy cameras that I just don't care about at the moment. It's just I love everything instant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> gimme, gimme! I want more, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, you know, I like putting a phone in my pocket that becomes yeah. a camera, and uh, it's, it's the easy. Curse of all photographers, I stopped carrying it, a it's, camera. It's, it's the iPhone. I got this one. This is a new Sony one. It's small. Ooh. So it just fits in the pocket. Yes. And, and then I, I don't Indeed. know. Indeed. It's, it's a vlogging, a a vlogging mm-hmm. camera. Oh, okay. But it's fun. Anyway, yeah. I, don't know. I like having a separate camera. But I still use the iPhone, too. Okay. Well, the iPhone's been my main focus yeah. with this uh, hipstamatic Hipstamatic, app. yeah. And um, like I said, I love everything in a square. My third book of photography called Beautiful Imperfections, I did that whole book on the iPhone. And what I loved is that... When I made, if you want to call it a a poster or just a large print, 30-30, pristine. You see everything still. So that let me... um, that helped me to understand that I was on the right road because if indeed when I do exhibitions, I can blow stuff up 30-30 if I want to. That's good to know. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So you went, like, when you got into photography after a long stint in the music business, mm-hmm. you kind of shifted into becoming an artist, basically. Sure. Um, in, a, in a way. Are you well, a- I always considered myself somewhat of an artist. Right. Uh, I was an A&R executive for 25 years in the music business, and I was a very hard worker. And it nearly killed me, but it didn't, as you can see. Right. Um, what was your question? I don't really know. Just like how, <laughs> how you shifted from oh, that right. to okay. getting into Thank photography. You. Yes. I always loved photographs. Yeah. I was a little bit of a weird kid that if I would go to friends' homes, I always wanted to see what family albums looked like. Right. Because I just love pictures. I love what pictures say. And I just wanted to look and see what like their family was all about. Then at some point in time... Um, Another instant camera came along, and it was the Polaroid camera. Right. And I was a wild and crazy young man, and I Polaroided all my one-night stands and men that I picked up on Santa Monica Boulevard and uh, anywhere, New York, Paris, 
London, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And I don't know what that says about me, but I have thousands of those <laughs> Polaroids. I guess it says fascinating. Uh, thank you. I, I was I fascinated. You, you had fun. That's, I had fun. Yeah. I was loose. Yeah. Um, and they're not well, like... All well, Libras are loose. There you go. Libras are sluts. There you go. <laughs> they are. Rah, rah. We are. It's just, it's just a fact. So many, many years later, wow. because uh, Polaroid stopped making the Polaroid mm -hmm. uh, the film, the film yeah. all right. another company came along called... Tell me. Anyway, I bought 10 packs of their film, and I hated every waking moment of it. I, the pictures that I took, I brought back to the place, along with the other uh, 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 packs of film. Um, so anyway, I, I always loved taking pictures. That was my focus back then, was men. Yeah. I do A&R, and I work in the business officially from 1980 to 2005. 2005, I start feeling sick again from HIV. Right. And I, um, my doctor said, you have to change meds. And I thought, I didn't want that stress anymore. And I did A&R beautifully, if I may say so, during the years that I felt record companies were still like record companies. And A&R people like myself went out every single night. I was out every night, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm going somewhere with this. So in 2005, I decided, well, I don't want that stress anymore. I'm officially a photographer. Right. So what do you shoot? What you love. I love flowers and I love men. Right. So most of the men that I shot were uh, 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 scarred and tattooed and muscle heads. And big. Yeah, muscle heads. I just yeah. told you. Yeah. Pay attention. Uh, I, I'm going too fast for you, darling. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Are. Anyway, so um, I decided. I decide, what? I'm following. Thank you. Um, and is it Ehud? Ehud. Ehud, not with a long E. No, it's a lot like of times people a. call him Ehad. Ehad. No, no I saw there was a U in there. <laughs> Ehud. It's Hebrew. Hebrew. Or we can call him Hooter. You know, I grew up in Borough Park. Please. So now, maybe you could tell me this. What does Mahasha'ah mean? Mahasha'ah, what's the time? Yeah, Mahashem Shacha. Mahashem Shacha, what's your name? Todaraba. Thank you very much. Pavakasha. Please. Ken. Yes. Lo? No. That's all I know. That's from, enough from, to get from, you a From, long from way. Varda, Varda Avishai, who lived upstairs from yeah. me in Borough Park. <laughs> so in 2005, I decide uh, I'm going to take pictures. And my pictures wound up being really good. Yeah. They're not um, pristine. Sometimes they look like snapshots. But I always got a feeling from... The person I was shooting. They wanted their photograph taken. I wanted to take the picture. So it wound up being that I have three books of photography out, mostly all of male erotica. Um, I want to do a new book, and my new book still has tattoos in it, but it's mostly of musicians, mm -hmm. whether it's Al from Ministry or Doyle from The Misfits or Alyssa from Arch Enemy. And everything is black and white, and everything will be a square. And I'm looking to make, and I don't have a publisher anymore because my German publisher went out of business, but I will um, make another book, 10 by 10, because I like that size. Really? You know, it's, it's, square. It's, it's, it's square and it's doable. At one point in time, people said, well, wouldn't you like to do a 12 by 12 like vinyl? No, I didn't want to do that. It would be cumbersome. It would be weird to put under your arm. 10 by 10 is a beautiful fit. Yeah. So for many years now, I have been taking pictures. And uh, I do A&R 
independently if someone asks. So in uh, 2009 and 2010, uh, Cindy Lauper called me twice, and um, I was the A&R executive for two of her records, a dance record called Bring You to the Brink, and then in 2010, she called back and uh, she said, I want to make a blues album. And I thought, well, Cindy being adventurous, I said, sure. So I would go up to her home on the Upper West Side and we would sit in her kitchen and have Chinese food. And we went through volumes of blues recordings, whether they were vinyl, CDs, or we both had our laptops on her kitchen table. And we made a blues record. And it's fantastic. And we made it in 2010. It got nominated for a Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album, but didn't win. But what it signaled to us is that we did great work. So um, Didn't you guys make a Nashville record, too? Liz told me to ask you about Cindy Lauper's Nashville record. I think she made a Nashville record, oh, but I was I, not involved. Oh, I thought Those she, were the two records. That's why, because I, I called Liz, and I was like, hey, what do you got for Michael? But I think maybe Liz she told meant... Me two things. Maybe, the two, maybe she meant the Memphis Blues album? Maybe. And then she also asked told me to ask you about taking a bath with Nina Simone. Oh, sure, of course. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know where well, we, we are. we can go with Cindy Lauper. Cindy, Cindy. Yeah, Cindy. So 2009, independently, I did A&R for her. Um, I still listen to music all the time. Right. And so uh, there was a, a little band from South Florida called Ether Coven. They are brutal. And the music is majestic. And it is certainly not radio-friendly. They made a record. Uh, they said, can you help us get a record deal? I solicited 10 independent labels who I thought would uh, like that kind of music. And they said to me, wow, great band. They have terrible numbers. And it made me think for like a minute. And I said, numbers? Oh, you mean like... Uh, Social media. Yes. Burned me up. What? Numbers don't tell you how talented someone is. And you know what? If you're signing a new artist, it is your job as an A&R executive to get those numbers up. Right. An independent band can only do so much out there. Yeah. So anyway. See, I, but that's like old school. Well, I am old school. That's old school music industry back when music industry used to help. Now it seems more like they just wait, kick back and wait and see what well, you I do. Well, I think, you know, A&R right? executives um, prior to the pandemic – they don't go out like they used yeah. to. They want to hear the music in their office. They look at somebody on YouTube. And even that, that is two-dimensional. For me, I had to go out yeah. and see what you're giving me on that stage. Yeah. Are you anything? Are you a wallflower? Right. Do you exude charisma? So, you know, I did that with a little band called White Zombie. Right. I see them at a place called under Indochine, which is a restaurant that still exists on Lafayette Street in yeah. the East Village. And it's a little black box. And I hear this friggin' noise. No songs. Noise. Yeah. And it was White Zombie. And I looked at them and I thought, oh, I love these people. And I what was. What was it about them? Yeah. What was uh, it about? Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought Rob. <laughs> I thought Rob exuded a certain charisma up there. Mm -hmm. It was very uh, primitive and animalistic. I loved his dreadlocks going all over the place. Right. And you, the same thing with Metallica. No dreadlocks. Um, I, you know, my eye just went back and forth to them on stage, and I thought, well, they don't have any songs, but I'm going to remedy that. 
So when they were over, we said our hellos, we became best friends. I signed them in 1991 to Geffen Records. And, you know, I had to talk to them about songs and songs having a beginning, a middle, and an end. The same thing like an album. You take the audience somewhere, so the album also has to have a beginning, middle, and end. And I know you didn't ask me this question, but, uh, oh, a and R. So A and R. Okay, so present day, I get Ether Coven signed to Century Media. And Century Media didn't ask me those questions about numbers. They thought, wow, this band is really cool. We know they're never gonna get on the radio, but let's do something. So that's where I am with them. And what um, kind of music is that? It's, it's, it's dark, it's metal. Uh, if you love Swans, if you love Crowbar, if you love uh, I Hate God, uh, I'd stick them in that category, even though we don't, I don't like labeling people. But right. for the um, listener that's listening to your show, they're brutal, yeah. they're heavy. And sometimes it's beautifully majestic. Ether Coven. Ether Coven. Their new album is called Everything is Temporary Except Suffering. So, <laughs> so you get the feeling. They're like Buddhists. There you go. Um, <laughs> you are going a million miles a minute, and I love that. But before you move ahead, there were two questions I had about stuff you just said. One about the photos of the one-night stands. If you were taking photos back then, why did you not also take photos of all the, the musicians you've met through the years? Or you, that was of no interest. And the second question is when you said to Rob Zombie about you need lyrics and songs, did any band ever tell you what the fuck do you know and just didn't listen to you? And Sure. Two totally separate questions. Um, I did take pic- Polaroids of friends back in the day. But for some reason, I, I don't know. I don't know why that uh, Polaroid camera didn't overtake me in the music business. But because I was out every night after hearing music, I would go to all the gay bars, and uh, you know, by then I'd be plastered. And um, I just liked the idea of saving that moment from this butch, built, scarred, tattooed young man. It was just, it, it was an excitement. And the second question was, if, ah, if yes. Well, member. you know, a lot of bands that I wound up signing had songs already. Sometimes things needed to be refined, but, you know, never too much because the reason I signed these people was for what they did musically. Uh, White Zombie wasn't there yet. We really got along like a house on fire very early on. And um, we wound up, they loved how this uh, record Seasons in the Abyss from Slayer sounded. And we decided, you know what? Let's get Andy Wallace, their producer in here. And um, they were growing because they had made a couple records for Caroline Records. Um, And they knew, they were smart cookies. They knew what they had to do to get on to Geffen Records and, and be competitive. So they learned very quickly. We made that first record, La Sexocisto, Devil Music Volume 1. Uh, it's, a, it's a great record. And I'll tell you a little story, and then we'll go back to whatever Joseph wants to ask me, because I tend to go off on all these tangents. We make the record, and it's a Wednesday in a marketing meeting. Hi, oh, those marketing meetings. <laughs> Squishy noises. <laughs> Hello. 
Oh, wonderful. I'm glad you have new shoes. God, God bless you. Um, so I, uh, it's a Wednesday at Geffen Records in Los Angeles, and we're in a marketing meeting, and the record stalls at 180,000 units. When I've been bragging, all oh, this is a million seller, blah, blah, blah. So, Alago, what are we doing? I didn't really have a solid answer, but the very next second, remember it's 1991, 92, MTV has been exploding, Mm -hmm. and these little ridiculous, idiotic characters named Beavis and Butthead decide (laughs) that White Zombie is their favorite band. Wow. So morning, noon, and night, MTV and the Beavis and Butthead show played that uh, single, Thunder Kiss 65. And that catapulted it to a million units plus. I just love telling that story because you never know where sales are going to come from. It's like a miracle when something like that happens. Total miracle. Yes, indeed. God's favor. There you go. For devil's music. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Joseph, you know, I have to tell you, this is so nice to see you. It's nice to see you, Yes, it's very, very nice. Yeah. Because I have great respect for the paintings. Oh, thank you. Like I said, I only know little bits of your music. You should see his flowers. I paint flowers, too. Oh, I can't. We have flowers in common. Okay, great. And tattoos. There you go. I have tattoos. Yes. Um, And you know what? If you like, and not to be put on the spot, yeah. I would love you to be part of my series. I want to be. Yes, you I, will. Then I you will almost be. said that when you were first bringing it up. Like, you, I want to. No be. need. Perfect. I it'll would be, love to. It'll be really. Believe it or not, the pictures are very beautiful. I've, I've seen your work. Oh, it is beautiful. Well, but these current pictures. Okay. And you know, it's tough when you have a mask on. Uh-huh. So it's all about maybe hands and what you say. How you express yourself with your eyes. Right. In any event. Um, so uh, I think we're just going back to, you know, I still listen to music. I'm still out there. Yeah, I'm old school in yeah. every which way you can imagine. And that suits me just fine. What, do you, what strikes you about a band? Because like, I feel like you gravitate towards really interesting choices. Like in like your love of suicide and stuff. Not everybody got them. A lot of people didn't get them, especially in that scene. Sure. What, what, what about a band strikes you that makes you get real interested or think, uh, or like White Zombie is a good example too. They didn't even really have songs and yet somehow you knew there was a, something magical there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is it like inside of you that, tell, that clues you in on that? Well, I have to just tell you, I'm egoless. I'm right. egoless. But I have very good instincts for people right. and artists. And I know, like I said previously, does somebody radiate any kind of charisma or not? Mm. And what do you have to say to me musically? Mm-hmm. What kind of story are you telling? And what happens then once I get all of that in my head, I have to see you, they, them live. Mm. And when I saw, and we're going to get to suicide in just one second, when yeah. I saw White Zombie, when I saw James Hetfield from uh, Metallica. Right. When I knew that I've always loved Nina Simone because she had fire like mm. no one else. I knew the, and John Lydon. John Lydon, oh, right. come on. What a great guy. And your documentary was the nicest I've ever seen. 
Well, that's I've what, never seen him that nice. Well, that's like, what, what everyone nice, says. What a nice guy. And it's because, <laughs> um, you know, we met in 1981 right. when I was, uh, I got my first job in the music business booking mm-hmm. the Ritz. I was the assistant booking director. Bow Wow Wow was supposed to play that weekend. Malcolm McLaren calls me up and says, we're not coming. What do you mean you're not coming? It's sold out. <laughs> Annabella's mother, she's underage, won't let her come to the States. I said, well, when you booked this thing, she was underage, so I'll pay for her mom to come. We're not coming. I said, send back the 50% deposit. Do you think we ever got back the deposit? No. No. So I had to think quick. I knew, I knew PIL were in New York on a press junket doing Flowers of Romance, and uh, I didn't know John. It's 1981. I called him up at Liz Rosenberg's office at Warner Brothers, and I, I said, I'm in a predicament. I know you don't know me. Do you know the venue, the Ritz? They say yes. Long story longer. I'm sorry. I booked Pill for two nights. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to stay behind this 30-foot screen that we have. The Ritz was infamous for this 30-foot white screen that we showed videos on. And uh, But, you know, people knowing that John Lydon is coming to the United States after, right after the Sex Pistols, they want rock and roll. They want insanity. He wanted performance art. Right. In any event, they never came out from behind the screen. He taunted and teased everyone. Major riot. Mm. We had to close down good, the venue that evening. Publicity. Oh, it was fabulous. Yeah. It was a shot a heard story. around the world. Yeah. That night on the like 11 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the morning news. The next morning, it was on the cover in the UK of Sounds, New Musical Express, and Melody Maker. 1981, fast forward, yes, John was very loving in my documentary. Yeah. Right now, th- uh, 39 years later, we are still friends. We have never, never had a bad word with each other. Even when I signed him to Electra in 85 and I had to drop him in 86, he said, Michael, I'm a realist. I know it went down. And then he jokes, he jokes with me like, you didn't want me there anyway. You only care about Metallica. Mm. All in jest. Right. But 39 years with that character who I love and adore. And when he walks in the room, he's like one of the smartest per- people that walk in a room yeah. wherever you are. That's true. That's what it seems yeah. like. Yeah. So it's about, for me, it's about the stories that an artist tells. It's about exuding charisma. It's about knowing how to relate to an audience. And when I see that an audience relates back to the artist, I know I want to be involved with those people. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So uh, wh- wh- why did you end up dropping Johnny Lydon? Yeah, John Lydon's uh, PIL... Uh, it was a tough sell. It was great. Incredible. You know, we wound up making that record album, yeah. the generic record, with uh, tons of session musicians, and Bill Laswell produced the album uh, itself. Uh, it didn't sell, really. It just didn't sell. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was, the timing was off. The deal was so expensive. Right. So expensive. So... Um, because it was so expensive, I wound up picking up uh, Live in Tokyo, and this is what you want, this is what you get, because Virgin America didn't want to put out those records. So we, we got them for North America and Canada, which helped the deal a bit. Um, but, you know, corporate, in the end, I did work for a corporation, even though I got into trouble all the time because I only stuck up for the artist and not the corporation. Right. Um, we just had to let him go, yeah. you know? Uh, and he did okay for himself. <laughs> 
I like your story in that you just like walked right into uh, you know what was called what the Ritz, I guess, sure. right? And got your first job. Sure. Like said, I just want to work here. Mm -hmm. I mean, who? Not that many people have the gumption to do that kind of sure. thing. Sure. You know, um, I have a little book out called um, "I Am Michael Alago: right. Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, yeah. Beating Death," and uh, you know, I tell in the store in the book. Available on Amazon. Oh, oh thank you. Available on Amazon.com. <laughs> thank you very much. Right now. <laughs> right now. 20 bucks. I'm cheap this week. 20 bucks. No audio book yet, by the no way. No audio book yet, but I'm going to uh, twist the publisher's arm to have me do an audio book. So um, I always talk about how I came out of the womb loving music. I didn't play an instrument. I love the idea of the piano, but never played the piano. I um, I just love music. I watched all those shows on television, like Dick Clark's American Bandstand and Don Cornelius's Soul Train, and it always spoke to me like, I want to be in music, but what does that mean to a fifteen-year-old? I don't know. Do I rate a record with Dick Clark on TV and those kids? Am I going to become a Soul Train dancer? I don't know. So okay. So now I'm 19 years old, and I go to School of Visual Arts, and I work in a pharmacy in the East Village, and I am taking lunch one day, and I walk down East 11th Street, and I see this beautiful Art Deco building, and it was called Casa Galicia. It was a Spanish dance hall, and uh, there was a little white piece of paper on the door, like an 8 by 10 piece of paper, that said... Um, I'm not sure if it's a dance club opening or video club opening. Yeah. Resumes wanted. Uh. So I just walked in and I was stunned at how beautiful this building was. And all of a sudden in the balcony, there was a man and I, I always liken it to like the Wizard of Oz. And he said, kid, what do you want? I said, I just read your sign and I want a job. And he said, well, do you have a resume? And honest to God, I don't think I knew what a resume was. Right. I don't think I did. And I said, no, uh, but I, I want to work in a, in a music club. And he, I don't know, he just uh, chuckled about it. And he said, come up to my office. His name is Jerry Brandt. Thank God I didn't know then what I know now about him because I would have been a nervous wreck. He managed Carly Simon, the voices of East Harlem. He worked in the... William Morris mailroom with David Gethin back in the day. Jerry helped bring the Rolling Stones to the United States. He worked with Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali. Wow. I knew none of this. That's incredible. So I'm a kid. I go up to his office, and we start talking about music, all kinds of music, from the Great American Songbook back in the day to what's happening in New York City right then in 1980. Mm -hmm. I had already been going out five years to all the nightclubs and the bars uh, when it was uh, when the, the owners or the people at the door were very lenient, lenient? Yeah, yeah. Lenient. About, you know, about letting you in. Yeah. I was 16, I looked like I was 12 and a half. You did. <laughs> and I had no problems. So anyway, Jerry Brandt interviews me and he said, you know what kid, I like you. You're gonna open my mail, you're gonna get my lunch, and you're going to answer my phone. And I was like, oh, my God, I think I'm in the music business. And you know what? That was the beginning. Yeah. I was in the music business. Wait, have we met before? No. Oh. 
You just have that face. I don't want to say what kind of face. Maybe a little mugshot with a smile. Uh, so Jerry gave me a job, yeah. and I listen. I was I feel a sponge. Like I know you though. But. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we're the same color. Yeah, we can hang out. We can hang out. So Jerry gave me a job. I listened intently on every single phone call he was on, which was with booking agents. ICM, FBI, William Morris, and so you I were took. Learning. I was. It was on the job training. You were mentored. Yes, I was mentored by Jerry Brandt. That's amazing. Oh, unbelievable! Yeah. So within the year, he said, "It's time. Get on the phone," and he listened to me to make sure I wasn't screwing up. And uh, I just loved the job so much, and I was so grateful. What did you love about it? That I was in the music business. Yeah. I was working at a club that every night we had to book talent that would sell out a 15, 1600 seat room. So we had two nights of Prince when his first album came out. We did the return of Tina Turner for five nights that brought out David Bowie and the Rolling Stones and everybody. You know, there were nights when we would have $2.50 nights which involved like for me i remember there was a night a two dollar fifty cent night where i booked uh where i showed pink flamingos and female trouble by john waters wow. and we had we had uh, pillows on the floor for everybody to sit down and enjoy themselves so um i was now in the music business and you know even as a young kid as a teenager in brooklyn i didn't have a plan b and you were in a position of power at the Ritz? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I didn't like, I was maybe just Maybe you didn't think about it I like that. I didn't think about it like were. that at all. I was just so excited yeah. that every night if I wanted to, I could stay I you know, I was there at the Ritz during the day making those phone calls from ten o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock at night. I would go home, have dinner, and then I would make my way back to the Ritz till four o'clock in the morning. Um so yeah, that was the beginning of it all for me. Where did your confidence come from? Mm -hmm. Like we, uh, I heard you say you never, you know, a closet is meant for clothes and you right. didn't really care. Like if people either like you or they don't like you and you don't really care. But that, a lot of people don't have that kind of yeah. confidence. Yeah, sure. You know, or the kind of confidence to walk into the Ritz and say, hey, I want a job and, you know. Well, you just said it. Um, yeah, I don't know where that came from. I had this bravado from an early age. You know, here I am, a gay Puerto Rican kid living in a Hasidic neighborhood. Um, but there were also other types there. There were Irish families and Italian families and Israeli families. And um, I just, I don't know why I had no fear. What about your, was it from your mom or your dad, you think? Mm. Well, my dad left us when I was 12. Right. And my mom was, uh, God rest her soul, she was a very strong woman. All like four foot ten of her. Uh -huh. um, and I just had this bravery about me that you're either going to like me or you don't. And I just simply didn't care. Right. It was just part of my whole, as they say, gestalt. I spent too much time caring. Yeah. I never <laughs> gave a fuck. Oh, man, that's good. That's good. If you could bottle that up. Yeah. Know, yeah. And it really, it, it really did help me along the way. Yeah, it seems like. Yes. It. Were you still at the Ritz in 88 when Guns N' Roses played there? No. Oh, uh, <laughs> I, I was at the Ritz from 1980 to 1983. Um, it was such a learning experience. 
I was going out with a young man named Mitchell Krasnow. And I said, you know, Mitchell, I know there's more out there for me. He said, well, you know, Michael, my dad, Bob Krasnow, big wig in the business, is leaving Warner Brothers. And he's going to re-up Elektra Records. Because in 1983, Elektra, as they say, was in the crapper. Mm. So um, Mitchell said, I'm going to tell my dad about you. And I always, I've always been a truthful person. So I said to Jerry Brandt at the Ritz, you know, Jerry, I love being here, but I know there's more out there. And I just heard that Bob Krasnow is going to Electra Records. And he said to me, oh, I get a little emotional about this. You know, I don't want to lose you, but I know Bob Krasnow, and I'm going to make that phone call. So from someone well-established in the business, and then Bob's son um, says, you got to meet this kid, Michael Olago. So I guess I'm about 21 years old, 22, 22 years old. And I meet with Bob Krasnow. And I have that same conversation with Bob that I had with Jerry. We talked about music, all types of music. And the added feature to that conversation was that Bob loved art. So there was Robert Longo and Keith Haring and all of this um, East Village 80s art on the walls of Electra Records. So I start talking to Bob about Art and that I lived at 380 East 10th Street in the East Village, where I live right off of 10th Street. Wow, yeah, just right there, 10th and A. Uh huh. So I don't know, 380, I think, was between B and C, right past the park. Yeah, so I saw all this artwork in there. So there was yet another bond being forged, not even just about music, it was about art. And I later find out that Bob really knew how to merge art and commerce. And so I got a job at Electra Records as an A&R executive. And um, I got that phone call two weeks after the call, the, the meeting that I had with Bob. And he said, I'm giving you a job in the A&R department. I, I don't remember what I said. I probably said, thank you. Yeah. I then called a friend in the music business and I said, what does A&R mean? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's funny. Oh, yeah. They said, Michael. Mailroom. <laughs> yeah, really. Artist and repertoire. And I later find out and figure out that it is the most important part, the most important department of a record company. Mm. If you do not sign great artists and you don't make great records, you don't have a job. Right. And again, very early on, it was about sink or swim. I was going to swim. What did Bob teach you about merging art and commerce? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, again, he was someone who allowed me to... Um, listen in on his conversations when he spoke to gallery dealers publishers artists managers and i just took all that in and you know the art part of it all was that um I knew I never wanted to work with anybody who oh forgive me was run-of-the-mill no And by uh, working those three years at the Ritz taught me a lot. And like I said, I I felt I had very good instincts for the type of 
artists I wanted to work with. Most of them wound up being in the heavy metal genre. Um, Why do you think that is? I love heavy music. Right. I love the sound of it. I love the, what it stimulates me. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, wow, this is my kind of music. Yeah, I just remember when Metallica first came out, I was in high school, uh -huh. like that Kill 'Em All and all yes, that. Yes, of was course. Just like so dangerous sounding. Like, oh, sure. You know what I mean? Like, it, like when those periods of time when music actually had this feeling of da actual danger, not like contrived danger, but like something menacing and wild is going on here. Oh, absolutely. Uncontainable. Sure. They were young people who were out of control musically, but right. very in control of what they wanted to do. What they were doing was merging traditional heavy metal, hard rock, British heavy metal, speed, a tad of punk, and it made this thing called Metallica. And it was unlike anything anyone else was doing at the time. You know, we were all loving our traditional heavy metal and hard rock, but wow, when they came on the scene, they immediately blew everybody away. And it was at a period in time where everyone was handing out flyers to their gigs. It had nothing to do with radio whatsoever. Young, young bands were handing out cassettes. Right. Here, listen to my band. Please come see us live. It was wild. It was exciting. When you first heard them, was it on a cassette or was it live? It was a couple things. I, uh, in 1982, I still lived in Brooklyn, under New Utrecht Avenue in Borough Park. Seven blocks away was L'Amour, mm. <laughs> rock capital of Brooklyn. Mm. And I saw them there with my friend Phil Cavano from Monster Magnet in um, 1982. Wow. They blew us away. Well, and the idea was Who that I was, was going to book... Pardon? Who else was on that bill? I think Metal Church might have been on that bill. I'm not sure if Wasp was on the bill as well, because, you know... Blackie I, I, Lawless. Blackie Lawless. Animal, <laughs> fuck like a beast. Chris Holmes. Oh, that Chris Holmes, <laughs> that poor baby. <laughs> yeah, God bless him. I hope he's not drinking anymore. Aren't they both like six foot seven? So, yes, yeah, something, something like that, like six that. five. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Why were you at the show to begin with and then keep telling oh, Because I had heard about them oh, and from it friends. It was a buzz already. So me and Phil went to see them. And after that, my thought was, I got to book them at the Ritz. Did, it just didn't happen for one reason or another. Not everything is meant to happen at that time period. So fast forward, it's 1983, and uh, Johnny Z from Megaforce Records and I become colleagues very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I hear three albums, an Anthrax record, a Raven record, Raven. and a Metallica record. Raven, Raven. And I flip. Sounds like Coven, Raven, yeah, Raven. Yes, Raven. Raven, Raven. Uh, fabulous <laughs> power trio from the UK, the Gallagher yeah. Brothers. We love them. And... Um, so I listened to the records. The they Gallagher were, brothers, but not Liam and No, no, Noel the Gallagher, Gallagher brothers in Raven. Different, yeah, there's yeah, another yeah. Gallagher brothers. There are, an from alternate the 80s. universe. Oh, yeah, different uh. universe. So uh, we, become <laughs> we become colleagues fast. We like each other. We like the same kind of music. At some point, I realized I got to sign these people, Metallica, right. because they, that independent label couldn't take them where I could take them right. because I worked for a corporation. I worked for a really cool label. Electra was always cool. Yeah. You know, back in the day, they had the Doors, the MC5, the Stooges. Come on. It don't get no better than that That's as far true. as I was concerned. Yeah. Um, so um, 
It was a big deal. I had to get them out of a deal delicately because I didn't want to get sued. I didn't want the corporation to get sued. Um, so at some point, it's um, I see them. At, I go out to the West Coast. I see them at the Stone in San Francisco. Um, they totally blew me away. I thought, oh, my God, James Hetfield is a ringleader on stage. He knew how to whip the crowd into a frenzy. That's my kind of band. It's over. I give Lars, the drummer, my card. He looks at me. because I never looked like a corporate person to begin with. I probably had a Misfits t-shirt on, a Plasmatics t-shirt on. And he was like, wait, you're an executive at Electra." Yes, I am. Here's my card. If you come to New York, How I want... How fun was that to be an executive oh, at Electra then? And, 22 years old. And you had an expense account, I Big bet. expense Bro, account. So you just got to go out and party Every night. and just like Every night. on the record <laughs> Every label. Night. That is correct. Buy everyone drinks. Drinks. At their expense. Uh, I mean, wow. The power came right away with that <laughs> position. You didn't have to, like, prove yourself. No, you know, Bob Bob Krasnow, the chairman of Electra, hired A&R people, and it was literally like, you're going to sink or swim. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how to do the job. That's yeah. why I hired you. Um, so where are we right now? Metallica. Metallica. Well, I know, but you what gave was Lars a card. I, I, I'm in San Francisco. I give Lars my business card. I said, call me if you come to New York. Beginning of, Janu beginning of 1984, he calls and says, we're part of a, um, a concert that's happening in August uh, at Roseland, which used to be... <laughs> it's not there anymore, on West 52nd Street. Right. And they were the uh, middle act. So I go, it's completely sold out. Anthrax did a great set, Raven did a great set, but it was really Metallica who were the talk of the town. They were, uh, they were the band on everybody's lips. Yeah, they were next level. Totally. And they, they blew the place up. Yeah. They really did. And I went backstage, drunk, of course, and um, the other three guys I had not met yet. So here I am, crazy, drunk, Latino, gay, screaming, carrying on, hugging Lars, kissing Lars, and they all stop. And Lars says, guys, this is Michael Alago from Electra Records. And they also look at me like, this is who we're going to have our, you know, put our life in his hands. This 12-year-old. Hello, shut up. Uh, 23, 23 at this time, 23-year-old. The next, the next day. This 12-year-old. He looked at all the photos. No, yes, the no, of course, of course. Um, the next day they were in my office. Yeah. And uh, remember, it's 84, so I gave them lots of vinyl, lots of cassettes. Uh, Had to woo them. And I felt like um, they never left. Right. They like they immediately liked me because oh, yeah, they Chinese food and beer. Chinese food and beer. Thank you for yeah. the reminder. Um, uh, that um, just like Cindy I was there. I, I was their age. He had Chinese with Cindy Lauper too. Uh, Chinese so. food. What's with Chinese food? Uh, <laughs> we're from New York. That's honey. the magic. Let's get sushi. That's the yeah. magic. <laughs> the magic. Get yeah, back that Chinese food. It's we the MSG. Dude. It's, it's, listen, it's New York. <laughs> <laughs> the MSG lubes up the oh artist. Oh my God, <laughs> Hush. It's okay. Um, so anyway, they were in my office the next day and it felt like they never left. Right. Uh, we got them off the label, um, Megaforce, and uh, they were in the middle of making their second record, Ride the Lightning, mm. and that's when we picked them up. And again, in those marketing meetings, um, a lot of people didn't understand what was going on. I mean, Electro was cool, but a lot of people were not that cool. Yeah. And it wasn't about the radio. Uh, at some point, somebody said, do you want to edit any of the songs? Except you? Yeah. 
I was uh, mortified. Right. If I ever went back to Metallica and asked them to edit any of the material, I would no, have lost all. I would have lost all credibility with right. them. I said to them, "No, this is not about editing anything. This is not a radio-friendly band. Right. So it, uh, you have to go see them live." So I, at one point in one of the meetings, I went to Krasnow's office and I said, Bob, you have to mandate that everybody go see Metallica um, when they're on the East Coast. So Bob walks in as Bob with the cigar, you know, fabulous suit and says, uh, Metallica coming to New York. You must go see them. If you don't see them, don't come to work tomorrow. Right. Wow. <laughs> oh, no, Bob was like that, yeah. you know? That's Same thing wild. with, like, when we had Tracy Chapman. They wanted to put out a love song, love and I had her. to, because I, I was Ray and our person. I didn't sign her, but I helped pull that record together. Wow. Um, so I had to go to Bob's office. I said, Bob, you got to save me again. Uh, the, the, everybody wants to put out Baby Can I Hold You. Now, this is not a girl who sang love songs, mm. and then we all knew Bob came into the office and said, oh, by the way, the single is Fast Car. Again, Get it on the radio. If you can't, I don't want to know. Don't come back to right. the office tomorrow. That was like Bob. That was Bob's signature. If you can't get it on the radio when it needs you're to fired. be, you're fired. Wow. Basically. So I don't know how I got off on that little Tracy cha- tangent, but she's marvelous as well. Yeah, oh she's well. Amazing. When you heard that voice, it was like um, second at a point, album too. Crossroads. Yeah, Crossroads. Ooh. Beautiful recording. I've done yeah. a lot. Of, I opened up for her a bunch of times. Oh wow. Yeah, back in the day. Oh how nice. Yeah. Matters yeah, yeah, yeah. of the heart. Let me ask you too. this, do you, please, because like, I know Lars likes Basquiat. I'm just wondering if there's a connection with you uh, influencing Lars's art love. No, Lars also is a smart person. Yeah. Um, just the New York, you know, you have he that just, New York He just cred. loved art. Yeah. And because uh, at some point he made a lot of money, right. he, he could accumulated <laughs> so much yeah. art. I think he was on the cover of like Art News at some point. Yeah, he's the, a big the, art the arts and leisure sec- The oh, arts yeah. and leisure section of the New York Times. Oh, yeah, he sold a Basquiat, I think, oh, for yes. a lot of money. Yes. Did you buy it? No. <laughs> no. Not yet. You Not know, yet. Um, that's happening. He though. just loved art. You know, and I also loved art yeah. from a very early age. And I also tell a little story in my book about Jean-Michel Basquiat um, that, uh, you know, we went to City as School together, which was an alternative uh, high school. Really? Yeah. That's uh, I, uh, Junior and senior years. We met. Uh, you had classes all around the city. Mm. We decided that we were never going to any of these classes. So we used to sit at a brownstone at 100 Livingston Street. And he would show me these composition books of his, wow. of doodles. Yeah. And um, I would just tell him that, you know, I want to be in the music business. Yeah. And we just became friends. Uh, I won't give away the whole story, but there's a nice story in my uh, memoir that's, that's out right now. I love him. Oh, I think he's the greatest painter in the whole wide world. <laughs> I, I, I tend to agree. I love, well, you know, I mean, uh, uh, his Joseph, composition is incredible. It's exactly. Just like, for me, it looks like um, like a, ch- a child mm-hmm. was doodling. Yeah. It looked like Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yeah. Uh, I knew he was speaking about what it was like to be young and black in America. And I just gravitated toward everything he ever did. Yeah. I think I must have about 40 catalogs at home on my bookshelf of Basquiat. Um, yeah, I just love the work. Yeah, we Love had the work. we had G. E. Smith uh, on the podcast, and he told this story about 
helping Basquiat move some of his paintings from like one space to another. Wow. And there was like, he said six big ones or something. And Basquiat was like, hey, thanks for the help. If you if you want one of these, you can have one. And he he at the time he was living, I think, at the Chelsea Hotel or some small place or something. He goes, listen, I would love it. I love your work, but I don't have enough room for it. So he didn't take it. I'm going to give you another can, story. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I, have, I have, Joseph, I have the same story. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. There's a little building on Great Jones Street. Oh, yeah, his whole studio, right? right that, if you go there now, there's all this graffiti about him. Yes, right all but over you know, it. thank yeah. God someone had the sense to landmark that building. Right. So there's a plaque there. It's a landmark there for him, yeah. Now. I wish they would have done that with Roseland on 52nd oh. Street, but that's another story for another right. day. So, um... High school's over. John michelle is doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. I run into him on the street. And we're like, oh, my God, we haven't seen each other. He said, you know, I'm having a Christmas party. Would you like to come? Of course I'd like to come. So uh, it's a couple of days before the, hol it's the holiday season. I go to the Great Jones Street place. I either ring the bell or knock on the door. The painter Francesco Clemente opens up the door. There's wafts of pot smoke everywhere. And uh, so I, it's packed, and I'm wondering where Jean-Michel is. Now, I can't remember if it was all the way in the back of the place or was down a flight that he was on the floor painting. Mm. And I could tell that he was in another dimension. And he didn't look so good from picking his face, right? which is unfortunately what junkies do. Yeah, the heroin makes you itch. That's, that's correct. Yeah. So I sit down on the floor with him, and I don't remember what we spoke about. And I, I, was, I think I let him know that I was so happy to be at his party. And he said something to the effect, we know each other a long time now, don't we? I said, yeah, a bit of time. And he says take this composition book. And I didn't want to tell him too. why I didn't take it, but I'll tell you why, and I tell it in my book. And I said, oh, this is so nice of you. But you know what? Let's talk about this another day. And the reason I didn't take the book was because I felt like you can't take from someone when they're in that mindset mm -hmm. he was not clear he was totally effed up right. and i just thought i'll do it another day mm. and another day never came right and uh, you know when i think about those th there is a, a, one of his galleries put out eight of those composition books in one book right and it looks like the composite do you know about it I don't know. It's I'll get you the book. But yeah, I'll get you the book. I love him. I'm a I'll big get you the book. Yeah. So there's eight composition books in one. Okay. And there's a great painting in there that then all of those composition books were primitive drawings of what later became paintings. Mm. And there's one painting that was a drawing then that I've always gravitated toward called Famous Negro athletes oh, yeah. but the three baseball players yeah. and i've always loved that piece yeah. and i'm not a baseball fan really and um at all uh, but i just it just spoke to me mm -hmm. that's an incredible story yeah yeah and he what he passed away soon after that. yes he passed away soon after I'm really that sorry yeah in 1988 yeah 27 years old i know it's unbelievable yeah. it's really unbelievable when you look at the extent of his body of work is just 
so profound. It's exquisite, prolific. Amazing. I mean, he really did work every day. Yeah. In the early days, there was a, a gallery owner. Her name was Anina Nose. Mm. He would be in her basement every day. Oh, that's and that's famous, where most yeah. of those big paintings came from. Mm. He just sat in her basement all the time making those paintings, making mm. those paintings. Did you meet Warhol? Um, only because of my friend Danny Fields back in the day. Uh. We would... Uh, Every Saturday morning, Danny and I would go to West Broadway to Soho to go to all the art galleries. And uh, wait, I met him twice. Once because of Danny on a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. He, Danny knew him for years, and he introduced me, and he was really nice. And uh, we're going to go back to Bob Krasnow at Electra Records and Merging Art and Commerce. Right. So I'm in my office listening to demo tapes, um, and sometimes music that I loved yeah. <laughs> that was recorded already on 10. Yeah. So I hear somebody banging on my door and I'm like, oh God. So uh, I lower the music. I say, come in. I see Kras now and I'm thinking, oh my God, am I playing the music too loud? No, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm an A&R person. And he said, someone wants to say hello to you. And in peaks, Andy Warhol. Wow. Bob was like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I got up from my seat. I walked around my desk and I said, oh, hi, how are you? And he said, hi, um, I I would like to give you the new, the the most recent issue of Interview Magazine. And uh, Debbie Harry was on the cover. And right there, he signed it for me. I said, thank you. And he walked around the whole entire office and gave everyone a copy of a, a signed copy of the current Interview Magazine. That's like what Bob was like. Yeah. You never knew what to expect with him. Right. You know, one day he knocked on my door again. And I'm like, you know, when the chairman knocks on your door, he doesn't just want to say hello. So Bob just looked down and he saw that I had, I always talk about having proper shoes on mm-hmm. like I do today. And he looked at my shoes and he said, let's go over to Madison Avenue and get a shoe shine. Oh, right. That's like what Bob was like. Yeah. He was extraordinary, extraordinary yeah. guy. What do you think it is about people like that? What makes them extraordinary? What made Bob extraordinary? He was just a brilliant man. He knew about wine, art, music, theater, food. He was a real foodie. That's like a person who just wants to absorb everything good in life. Yeah. And you learn from people like that. My second mentor. Curiosity is like gravity, isn't it? Curiosity. And for me, I have a lot of that. I I was, you know, I was going to say, I don't ever say I was like Bob Krasnow because he's up there in the stratosphere. But I was always a curious young person. Yeah. And that's what got me everywhere. It's true. Yeah. Curiosity. Yeah. It's like a gravity, like Mm -hmm. you're the planet of curiosity. Mm -hmm, Sure. Yeah. So talk about suicide a little bit <laughs> with pleasure yeah sure sure because that's uh, such an interesting story as well sure and just like i heard you talk about like yeah there would without them there would be no depeche mode and i think that's true they are underrated absolutely in totally underrated okay so we're going to go back in time people which i love doing because back in time in the 70s one was out every single night you were at Max's Kansas City. You were on Avenue A. You were at CBGB. You were at, uh, 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 well, Save the Robots is After Hours, and that's another story for either later or another day. You were out every night. So it's 1976, and I um, had heard something about this group Suicide, and I decide I'm going to see them. 
So I go see them at Max's Kansas City one night. And uh, the stage is very low. It's a couple of inches off the ground, maybe not even a foot off the ground. And I'm sitting at one of the long black tables. And I hear this pulsing beat coming out of Martin Rev's keyboards and his keyboards were taped up there were cassette recorders taped to the the keyboard and alan vega is up there just scouring and scouting the room and nervous energy and something got me out of my seat to those three little steps at the side of the stage and i am just staring at him and they do this epic 18-minute song or 20-minute song called uh, Frankie Teardrop, right? Is it Frankie Teardrop? Yeah, Frankie Teardrop. Teardrop. Oh, my God. He's yelling. He's screaming. He's banging his microphone on his face. Blood starts dripping down. I'm just sitting there. He basically, they emptied the place. Really? In the early days, they freaked couldn't keep... Out. Oh, freaked yeah. everyone out. Yeah. And I am, I am loving... I am feeling this music. I am loving every second of it. So they finish the, the show, and um, they go up to the third floor where these little dressing rooms were at Max's, and make my way up there, and I have my little plastic Kodak camera with me, and um, I introduced myself to Alan. I said, oh, hi, my name is Michael Olago. I live in Brooklyn, and I love you. Well, first of all, he was so surprised that so somebody loved, loved suicide <laughs> and that this, uh, I guess I was 15 or 16 years old. That's wild. And there's a great snapshot that I had someone take of me and Alan that, not that night, but one of those nights that he was at Max's and I was at Max's. From my, and it's not clear. It's from a plastic Kodak camera. Right. One of those yellow cameras that you got developed, your film developed either at the candy store in Brooklyn or at the pharmacy. And um, from then on became my lifelong respect for the music and my great love of Alan Vega, the person, yeah. and the music as well. Um, they were extraordinary. There was no one like them. I'm sure, I, I've heard from artists like uh, Depeche Mode and Ministry that if it wasn't for, and Trent Reznor would probably tell you that same thing, right. that he loved suicide. There was Listen, Bruce Springsteen recorded yeah. Dream Baby Dream. Right. And, one of, and on one of Bruce's last tours, when he played Madison Square Garden, he would bring out the keyboard or the harmonium mm -hmm. and by himself, in a beautiful light, would sing Dream Baby Dream. Mm. Yeah, no bad. I mean, I heard that they would get like booed and stuff like that because okay, nobody I'll give saw, I'll give you two nights. Yeah, nobody saw somebody do like Billy Idol music like that. Loved. Before. And respected Alan. They were great friends. I didn't know that. Rick Ocasek. Right. I knew that. The biggest Alan Vega fan ever. Yeah. He produced the first two solo records. He was at every Alan Vega exhibition. Also a great artist, Alan Vega. Alan, great yeah. painter. Yeah. Uh, sculptor. Sculptor. One yeah. of a kind. So... I got to bring... Oh, so Billy Idol was huge back then, playing 15,000-seaters. Mm -hmm. The Cars. Massive. Playing those same sold-out venues. 
And because of their great love for Alan, they wanted those audiences ay, 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 to experience Alan Vega. So I got to bring Alan to both those shows. And basically, he got booed. Never off stage because he would never leave the fucking stage. Right. He would say, fuck you. Bottles and cans and stuff so would wild. get thrown. Because, you know, you're talking about, you know, the masses and people who liked commercial music. And they couldn't get the idea of somebody just being up there with a keyboard and a, and a drum machine. Yes. Because nobody had done that yet. So right. it's like well, tra trailblazers those... get the hate. And yeah. then, then it <laughs> right. becomes accepted and well, goes to best mode. those audiences you know? were listening to Top 40 radio. Right. And they weren't open to experimentation. And uh, yeah, you know, Alan and I, were from 1976 until the week that he passed away, yeah. we stayed great friends. I went to every one of his gigs, whether they were The Return of Suicide, his solo records. Um, I was his A&R person at Elektra because amazing. Rick got him signed to Elektra because how do you say no to the leader of the cars yeah. <laughs> who were selling millions of records for Elektra? Uh, Bob Krasnow loved Alan. And uh, like I said, I loved Alan and his son, Don Dante and his wife Liz, who were very, very close. Yeah, I'm close with them too. Like, actually, I Great feel people. such a connection with him because I got into boxing through Liz, and I boxed with Dante too. Oh and, my God! And, uh, we watch fights over there uh -huh. at his old apartment, uh -huh. you know, and see his sculptures. And I just feel like his spirit somehow has, has helped me. Oh, um, that's he, wonderful through, to hear. Through them, through mm -hmm. the, the the family he had. You yes, know? of course. Kind of like an extended family of mine. Well, you know, I will bring up a little word called faith. Yeah. I have a lot of faith. And, you know, there are certain people like Alan yeah. and David Bowie, one of my all-time favorite artists. Wow. I feel like their presence in New York has always been so strong. Yeah. That the physical self is not here. Yeah. But their presence is always looming. Yeah. Same with Lou. And Lou. Forget about Forget Lou about Reed, it, man. Woo. Woo. Lou Reed. Yeah. Woo, I got chills. I get chills too, New dude. York. I got chills too. It's wild. The poet of New York. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's true. I just feel like... There are certain people it, who just don't leave us here. It just sounds corny, I guess, in some way, to some maybe it would, but I just felt like... Because also I discovered boxing and... And became really good friends with Liz during a really tough time in my life. So also, it's like there's that. I just felt like, like there's a therapy of sorts. The yeah, boxing? yeah, yeah, big time. And it was just like, and just so I just felt like you know I don't know this guy, but I just feel like he is in some weird way a guardian angel. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. I you know yeah. I feel it. Sure. I'm gonna tell you two little stories. Yeah. Do we have time? Yeah, of course. Okay. So I'll give you two little stories. Tony Visconti produced mostly all of David Bowie's records. Yeah. So here we are two years ago, and people are just hearing that David is very, very ill. Right. He almost never leaves the house. He does leave the house one day to go to the, um, the East Village workshop where they're doing this play called Lazarus. Right. And um, so he leaves the house that day. He goes back home. That Friday, January 8th, Tony Visconti has a band that he put together that are doing Bowie songs. And I see them at the High Line. And it's David's birthday. So he stops the show. 
and he says to all of us in the audience, would you like to say happy birthday to David? Now, all of us are looking at each other like, wait, is David going to come out from backstage? Mm -hmm. He dials him on the iPhone and he said, David, some friends want to say hello to you. And all of us said happy birthday, saying happy birthday to David Bowie. The show resumes. Sunday, January 10th. I don't know that David passed away yet. I'm in the shower. I hear friggin' noise in my apartment. I'm going, I don't have the TV on. I know I locked my door last night, my front door. I, I throw a towel around myself. And on my computer that I left on, I hear happy birthday from Friday night. Mm. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Wow. Did Tony put this on his Facebook page? So I get back, I, I, I dry off, and I, the song disappeared. So I go to Visconti's page, and I went, no. He couldn't have put it on his page because it was live. So I say this to you because it is in keeping with someone's spirit being here. Yeah. So that day, there was a bunch of us that went over to his place at 285 Lafayette, the last place. Again, him and he, Lafayette. Oh, yeah, big th- time Lafayette. Yeah. East Village. We love the East Village. And we all left flowers and candles there because yeah. that was the last place him and Iman lived together. Yeah. And I think she might still live there and in another building on Lafayette. Mm. It's like, you know, when, when, when one is open to the possibilities in life, yeah. everything and anything is possible. A teeny little story. My mom died three years ago. She was 94. She had a wild, crazy sister, my my Aunt Ida. Uh My Aunt Ida loved me. Ida died five years ago. I am in Havana two years ago, and um, there was a woman there. She was a Santeria, white magic Mm. priestess. So I'm with my friend Lionel, and he says, as she says to me in her broken English and in my broken Spanish would you like a blessing and I thought honey I could always use a blessing <laughs> so she she uh, pours some like something called alcoholado a Spanish flower based alcohol mm-hmm. to these flowers and she starts hitting my shoulders and my stomach she says I don't know you but you take a lot of medications for something don't you I said I do she says oh you're going to be changing those medications soon and just pay attention Pay attention to your life. Mm. And she says, oh, my God, I don't know if this person's alive or not, but um, who in your mother's side of the family practices Santeria? Mm. And I'm like, my titi Ida. She says, oh, my God. She says, she passed, right? I said, yes, she did. She says, you know what? She is your spiritual angel. You never have to worry about anything ever again. Wow. No, no, no. Please, Joseph. This will go by quickly. I'm crying. Yeah. My, my friend Lionel has his arm around me. She tells him a few things about his health and his knees. And we both freaked out. And um, so we took all that with us. Right. I don't know when, two years ago again, three years ago. I'm backstage at Slayer of all things. Nice. Slayer. And there's a young, beautiful gal there. Her name is Jessica Pimentel. She's one of the stars of Orange is the New Black. Mm. And we never met. 
She says, are you Michael Alago? I said, I am. She says, I'm a little drunk. I said, oh, I thought that was a signal to get her a seat. We're backstage. She says, I know a few things. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. Who, are the, who, are the, who are the women on your mother's side of the family? And there's one man, but he's not important to the story. I said, my titi Ida, my titi Ursula, my titi Ida, my titi Bobby. And if you want to include my mom and my uncle Mike. Who is your aunt you were closest to? I said, my aunt Ida. She says, Michael, she loves you. Mm. And she forever lives here and you never have to worry. This is like Havana Slayer. A woman on Facebook recently (laughs) says to me, you know, Michael, I hope you don't think this is a little outlandish, but I see all the positivity you put out there on Facebook. And a lot of it I see has to do with your mom and her sister. Mm. And you know what? They watch over you. And I hope you don't take this in the wrong way. I wrote, said, Joanna, that's a blessing. And I love my Titi Ida. And, you know, it's like my Titi Ida comes to me more than my mom comes to me. And it's no less important or anything. But she was really a force that when you hear stuff like that, how can you not be a believer? Right. So I believe. I have faith. I am always open to the possibilities. And... um, I don't know. Life is good. That's amazing. Considering the world we're living in right now. Yeah. Life is good. Yeah. It's wild. I wonder how some people have those gifts that they can see stuff like that. You know? Yeah. It's interesting. Sure. Tell me about working with Nina Simone. (laughs) Working with Nina Simone. Again, not to be a, a show off or anything, but uh, I, th- I have a book out called I Am Michael Alago. It's available on Amazon.com. And I think the Nina Simone story in my book is the longest story in my entire book. Um, my Aunt Jenny, another aunt of mine, my father's sister, gorgeous. Great taste in music back in the day. I'm like a 12-year-old. I loved going to her house on Saturdays when my dad, my mom and dad had split up, so I would go to her, my dad's, place on on the weekend and it was in a brownstone where my dad lived there my aunt lived there my grandparents lived there and my aunt jenny lived there crazy don't ask and she had great taste in music so i would listen to the superfly soundtrack the isaac hayes shaft nancy wilson johnny mathis and she had nina simone in concert and uh, 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 uh nina simone at town hall and i was fascinated by the beauty of the album cover and then I heard, and I didn't have a word for this. I didn't have the vocabulary for this word back then, but it was almost um, an androgynous voice. Mm. It was deep and beautiful and soulful and uh, slow like molasses. And I loved this voice, and it was Nina Simone. Right. So in growing up, I paid attention to Nina Simone, and I started buying her albums. And she wound up being my favorite artist of all time, bar none. I love Nina Simone. Um, She was, you know, when she she scowled, watch out, because she'd rip your fucking head off. But when she smiled, 
all was well with the world. Hmm. And uh, so I'm an A&R executive. I am back at Elektra. I left to go to Geffen. I went back to Elektra. It's the 90s. And she hasn't made a record in about 12 years. And people would say, why do you want to be involved with her? She's, She's trouble. Yeah. She's a has-been, and I thought to myself, don't you be talking about Nina Simone like that. <laughs> and I her. had a tough time convincing Bob Krasnow to sign Nina Simone. Nobody wanted to be, nobody wanted to be bothered, but I wanted to be bothered. Because geniuses are difficult. Yes, and she and you know, you can't throw that word genius around no. all the time, but no. she was really a genius. Right. She knew how to turn Jacques Brel from French to English beautifully. She knew how to turn Bob Dylan's Just Like a Woman and uh, Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues. And she knew how to make Here Comes the Sun by George Harrison her own. Right. This is an artist, a singer-songwriter who defied genre, who took those songs and knew... Who who took those songs to her heart and knew how to make those recordings, those live performances, her own. Not many people can do that. Right. And that's what I loved about her. And I think she loved me because I loved her so much. For the last about 15 Isn't it years... is the way that works? If you give love, you get it. Yes. Give love, you get love. Yeah. 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 So we became friends the last 15, 16 years of her life. It was not an easy friendship, but I had so much love for her that uh, even in the insane times when, you know, every morning when I got to work at Electra, I would read three newspapers, the, the Daily News, the Times, and the Post. Page six of the Post, it was always gossip. Mm -hmm. So I would see Diva's home on fire, and I'd be like, wait a minute, that's Nina's home. I... So I'd have to call the south of France. The housekeeper would answer, and I'd say, uh, is uh, Juanita, is Dr. Simone, Dr. Simone at home? Oh, yes, but she doesn't want to talk to you. Uh -uh. <laughs> She's mad. Why? <laughs> she said you started the fire. Oh, my God. No. I said, wait, oh, I'm, in New, I'm in New York. <laughs> no, no, it's oh, these are what the stories were that's like. That's wild. I'm... <laughs> At 75 Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. She's in Aix-en-Provence in the south of France. She said, Ellen, she said to tell you, she's not a white businessman. She's an artist. So stop sending her all those faxes. Damn. So I said, you tell her that I was sending her those faxes so she could sign and get the rest of her advance. Mm. Hello. <laughs> sugar. She's called me Sugar Lips. <laughs> sugar Lips. I said, wait, Nina, have you been on the phone this entire time? That's fucking funny. No. Dude. I said, that is great. you're lying to me, but whatever. That's I said, hon, great. come on. How did this fire start? Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Why did she think you started it? Because that's just, just you know, in, that's that, that's outlandish list. In the list. spirit realm? Like, well, was she, not even that. Not just even that. Literally, you were everything there. Everything was outrageous. Right. The stories were all outrageous. I wonder if she knew she was being outrageous. That was just her personality. Yeah. And maybe she did. 
Yeah. Maybe she did. What an outrageous planet she well, was. Yes. Her, her mind was yeah. on another planet. Yeah. So I said, hon, really, come <laughs> <Wow>. on. You <laughs> know what? That's Sign amazing. the paperwork mm-hmm. so I could send you the rest Some of money. the money. Because yeah. she was all about the money. Right. It's and funny I said when to her, will wake Hun, up to the money. <laughs> what is this? I heard about the gun mm. and the, 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 about the gun. She said, honey, you know that I turned killer a long time ago. Whoa. And <laughs> that's the, the gun. And you know I needed it last night because there was a man trying to get in my window. Uh-oh. I said, Nina. That was the fireman coming into your bedroom to save your life. She said, my dear, you're young, you're gay, and you don't know that everybody wants to fuck a black woman. And he was coming here because he wanted to fuck me. I said, Nina, no, he was saving your life. She said, "Okay, listen. Just send the money." And that was our that was our conversation that day. That's amazing. But those were a lot those were the conversations that I had with her a lot that they were on that level of outrageousness. And sometimes I provoked her, but yeah. I loved every waking moment of our friendship. We got drunk together. On the last night of her nine-night stint at the village gate, I gave her ecstasy. Wow. We went out all night. We wound up in the in the VIP at the limelight. I bring her Home, not home. To you did back. ecstasy with Nina. Simone. I gave her ecstasy. That's she incredible. said, well, "Wait, what is this going to do?" I said, "Hun, it's going to make us want to get married at the end of the night." Yeah. She was like, "It's going to make you think firemen are trying to fuck you." Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, that, that, that too. That too. Gay Latino men want to fuck you now. So, um, I mean, the, every night, every experience oh, with man. her was fabulous. Was fabulous. Wow. And you know. I just loved every waking moment of her. And, you know, I thought to myself, this is an artist that cannot go out with people thinking she's a has-been. Yeah. So I made a beautiful record with her. We, we, we listened to a lot of material. What a gift you gave her. You gave she her gave a, me, too, yeah, and both, that I got to executive both. produce this record. It's like both, but oh, it's yes. a nice gift you gave her. You know, her. we listened to a lot of music. We loved a very strange, and I say strange, record by Frank Sinatra called we, A Man Alone. Uh, I love the We Small Hours. But I, well, Man uh, Alone, yeah. I gotta but check it A out. Man Alone is poetry. Wow. Words and music by the late, great gay poet Rod McEwen. Wow, I'm going to check this one out. Hard to find, but huh. I'll, I'll find it for you. Yeah. Uh, and we both loved... The last record that Billie Holiday ever made called Lady in Satin. She made it with the Ray Ellis Orchestra. Now, Billie Holiday's voice was shot by then. Shot. And if you don't know Lady in Satin, it is delicious. I'm going to get both of yeah. So we modeled our record, a, a, a Single Woman, by A Man Alone and Lady in Satin. We made it with a 50-piece orchestra. Very expensive. I didn't care. Was it li- done live? Oh, vocal, yes. orchestra, same time? Oh, listen. In the old school way. We had the orchestra for two days. Yeah. Very expensive. They're there from 9 to 12. Yeah. They take lunch. It's union. Union. It's 12 to 1. Tough. They're back at 1. From one to five. If you went overtime, get the take, forget that. Tough, tough shit. But we got it. Yeah. Um, we made it at Chick Corea's studio in Los Angeles. Wow. Um, our producer was a wonderful, is a wonderful gentleman who was at the time married to Natalie Cole. I mean, there's so many places this story goes. And um, 
His name is Andre Fisher. He was the drummer for Chaka Khan's Rufus, wow. and he produced Nina's record. Didn't sell so well. The, you know, of course, she became difficult again. The only thing I got her to do was Late Night with Jay Leno, and the wonderful Jim Gavin wrote a gorgeous piece on the record mm. in the New York Times. After that, she refused to do anything for me, and uh, there's that story and a lot more in my memoir. Um, so uh, the last time I saw Nina Simone was July of 1999. And Joseph, I'm sorry, I'm going off on tangents on it's all these things. It's beautiful. But uh, I see her in 1999 because Nick Kay from The Birthday Party is doing a series of um, shows called The Meltdown Series. So Suicide is one night. Nina is one night. Elvis Costello is another night. And, the, and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds are another night. So it's July of 99. She's staying at a, a fancy hotel in London. I let her know that I'm coming over with a bottle of champagne and two dozen white roses, which she loved white roses. I get there and there's a hubbub. The women are ironing her clothes. Someone's cornrowing her hair. She sees me. She dismisses everyone. Darling, blah, blah, blah. And now we're, we're at it. We're like kids and we're drinking champagne. And she says... Let's take a bubble bath. <laughs> okay. I said, hold on a moment. So I go into the bathroom and I see if there's bubbles, and, you know, and I call downstairs to concierge and I said, could you call the chemist? That's what they call them in the UK. Could you call the chemist? And um, I need bubble bath. And I said, deliver them to Miss Simone's room. So we, do, we take a bubble bath. She strips down to everything. I'm a coward. So all I have on are my boxer shorts. We bring the bottle. And we sat there like teenagers laughing our heads off. It was the last time I ever saw her. I mean, that and the performance wow, that dude, evening. Wow, I'm getting chills when you say that. And, to, uh, and, well, and just a little thing. I'm in the green room that night. And Nick and Elvis are drunk. Mm. So I explained to her, I said, you know, Elvis Costello would like to say hello. She said, Michael, what the hell are you talking about? Ain't Elvis dead? Nah. I said, no, no, El you understand. Different he's, Elvis. He's different Elvis <laughs> and a songwriter. He's groveling. Oh, that's funny. He kisses her hand. She looks at me. They leave. She pours the champagne uh, on her hand. Uh, I like a disinfectant. And I'm like, thank <laughs> God she did, wasn't that rude to them when they were in the room. That's funny. So fast forward. It's, I'm going to, it's 2003, April. I'm going to my dad's grave to clean it up in Brooklyn because of the winter. And, you know, I just needed to clean up stuff there. And something says to me, call Nina. So I go back home before I get on the train to Brooklyn. I call the south of France, and the housekeeper answers, and she says, you know, Michael, she had a stroke, and she's still recovering from the, uh, the, the breast uh, cancer. I said, well, I'll only be a minute. So she gets on the phone, and she's very, 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 very weak. She says, hello, my darling. How are you? I said, I'm good. But you don't sound so good. She said, I don't feel so good either. She says, um, I still want to know why we never got married. And I said, well, you know, I'll explain all that to you tomorrow, my dear. I'm going to take a plane to the south of France. I'll have Clifton pick me up in Marseille, and he'll drive me to you. 
you know, I love you so much. And I heard the phone drop. And Juanita says, she's, I said, oh, you don't have to explain. I go to my dad's grave in Brooklyn. I come home. I normally don't keep the computer on. I normally don't have CNN on the computer. I wake up, and the headline is Nina Simone dead at 70. Blew my mind. She meant and means the world to me. Mm. I, I lost it that day. I paced in my apartment. I was crying. I didn't even want to think about hearing the music. I didn't listen to the music for about two years. Um, her, people, I don't want to name names, but people close to her didn't invite me to her ceremony in France. And I thought, you know what? I got over that quickly because my relationship was not with them. It was, with, it was with Nina. Right. And I just loved her so much. Yeah, my yeah. all-time favorite artist. Yeah. Ever. Ever, yeah. ever, ever. She yeah. was a force to be reckoned with from the civil rights movement to present day. She was a force. Yeah. And there was nobody like her. And because of the times we live in, I don't know if there could be somebody like her. You pray to God that you get these masters so we can learn from them. And Mavericks. Too. Mavericks. Mavericks. You you gravitate towards Mavericks. If it's Johnny Lydon or Nina Simone. Hello. Even, yes, even sir. James Hetfield or whatever. Like these people that are just to the beat of their own fucking drummer. Absolutely. You're um, like that. Oh, too. yes. That's I why. was watching something on TV. I think it was Music Cares. Mm -hmm. And Bob Dylan was getting a award. Right. And, and part of his very long speech, he spoke about he couldn't believe that somebody like Nina Simone would even record his material. Mm. That is the respect that Bob Dylan yeah. had for Nina Simone. It's, he said, you know, we passed... transcendent. Transcendent. Thank yeah. you, Joseph. He said, we would pass each other in the village all the time and we would talk to each other. Yeah. He said... He knew that she was a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. He knew that. And so many people knew that. And so many people these days, they're sampling her music. And uh, really, I, I love Nina Simone. And if people in your audience don't know about Nina Simone, you better go out there and Google her. Yeah. And you better go to YouTube and watch Mississippi Goddamn yeah. or To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, two songs that she wrote. But there's a great one from 1965 in the Netherlands of Mississippi Goddamn during the Civil Rights Movement. And she wrote that song for Dr. King because I believe he got killed in April of 64. Listen, I could go, you know what? I would just be here with you all day. Mm. So I don't know if you want to talk about anything else, but I could always end on, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for talking about Nina Simone. Yeah, thank I hope you. I see more of you. I hope I see more of you I too. I want to shoot you for my Art in the Time of Coronavirus series. I would love, series. To, I would love We're gonna to do, do that, that very, very soon. Let's do that soon. Okay. Thank you for coming on this podcast, man. <gasps> now it's, I'm so excited. It's been a joy to We need to, to do you. part two. Yeah, what yeah, energy, Michael. Well, we can. We can. I mean, you, you're you in the sure. West Village, right? I live in Chelsea, right above okay, the West Village so for about 25 years. We're right now. here, so we, should, we will do part Where two. Where do you live? I'm in the East Village. Okay. Yeah. I'm so, coming to the East Village very we'll, soon. We'll hang out soon. We'll exchange phone numbers. Absolutely. And um, I think this is the start. 
also of something special. Yeah. Like I feel that already. I feel it. So too. thank you so much. Thanks. I thank you very you, much. Thank you so I love much. you too. for people listening. Well, I am you. Michael Alago, yeah, thanks, available on Amazon. And we'd be remiss not to tell people about the documentary. Shout right. out to Drew, Drew Stone. Stone. Good our, call. our director, who Drew Stone. Good dude, us. Good yes, dude. yes, Drew Stone. Who, yeah, good guy. Drew, Drew Say the name of the movie. Uh, Drew, the Drew made a documentary about me. Who the fuck, me. Who is, the fuck is, is that guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. Produced, on Amazon produced as well. Produced by um, Michael Alex and directed by Drew Stone. Uh, right now, present day, uh, you could find it only on Amazon Prime, and it's a rental on YouTube. And my book, I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death, because I beat death. Can't cheat death, but you can beat it twice. Yeah. And... Um, is available on Amazon.com. Twenty bucks. Me and Joe both watched the documentary about two weeks ago. And oh, just, I was blown. It's good, right? Blown yeah. away yeah. that you were in the background, and I never knew about you. And yes. you influenced so much of the music that oh, I personally loved. Oh, thank you so loved, much. And you had yeah. it, like thank you very very yeah. much. Ehud yeah. is so excited that you're coming on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're, you're too kind. Thank yeah. you very thank very you. much. You know, we made that for Kickstarter money. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, Drew said that you know that he ran into some financial issues, and Jesse Mallon, who's also a good friend of Whoa. all of ours, helped make it happen. And Cindy gave extra money, Jesse gave extra money, Rob Zombie gave extra money, and what a blessing that is when pe- when artists that you work with say yes. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. Nice Thank to you, meet everyone. you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, as well. everyone. And nice you. to see you again. We'll and you see. also have a beautiful smile and Thank beautiful you. teeth. Thank you. <laughs> I, don't know. I always say that about James <laughs> Hetfield. He has beautiful teeth. That's why I signed. Legendary him. teeth. Legendary right. teeth. Thank you both for having <laughs> Thank me. You, Thank you, Michael. Everybody out there, have a great day. Have a great Be day. Be safe everybody. in this crazy world that we live in, and uh, keep moving forward. Follow your dreams. Everything is possible. Thank you, Michael. Thank the you. End. The end. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated.